What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now it's time to talk about Donald Trump and the triumph of fear in American politics. For that, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's a freelance journalist, a lecturer at the University of California, and a regular contributor to The Nation. He's written eight books. The most recent, just published by Nation Books, is titled Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. Thanks for having me back on. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation by talking about Trump's comments following a big terrorist bomb attack at the Brussels airport back in March 2016 when he was running in the Republican primaries. What did Trump say and what didn't he say? Well, what he didn't say was a straightforward issuance of condolence. He didn't make a statement about how sorry he felt and how sorry the American people felt for the victims of this attack, which would have been the immediate humane reaction. Instead, he immediately went on this tirade about what he called the torture, that if we'd had the torture, we would have been able to interdict these suspects, we would have been able to get them to talk about attacks before they unfolded. And he sort of almost reveled in embracing the implementation of a kind of state violence that democratic states for centuries have shied away from, from the Enlightenment period, the torture has been a taboo. Now, governments do it sometimes. They usually do it in secret because they're deeply embarrassed by it. But the idea of a major international figure asking the international community to publicly embrace forms of physical torture that have been banished by democracies for decades and centuries, that really took us in a new direction. And I remember that although uh, we did torture people during the George W. Bush presidency, he never called it torture. He called it enhanced interrogation. That's right. And the fact that he had a resort to euphemism and the fact that his Justice Department went out of their way to craft these legal justifications that said it wasn't torture... Well, on one level, it didn't make it any better. I mean, if you were somebody at Abu Ghraib or at Guantanamo or at one of the CIA black sites and you were being tortured, you were being waterboarded, you were being put in 
coffin-sized boxes for prolonged periods. You were being hung by your arms. All these ghastly things that we've read about or should have read about in Senate reports and in media accounts over the last decade. Well, if you were one of the victims, it didn't really matter whether it was called the torture or whether it was called enhanced interrogation. It was wrong. It was morally, morally wrong. But the very fact that the Bush administration was embarrassed enough by what they were doing that they looked to euphemism at least spoke to the fact that they realized that there was something grubby about it, something really awful about it that they were skirting moral boundaries. What Trump's doing as he talks about normalizing torture, as he talks in public about collective punishment of terrorism suspects and their families, every time he does that, he's inviting the American public to join him in the grubbiness. And one of the things that fascinated me in the election campaign, and one of the reasons why early on I started writing that Trump had at least some similarities temperamentally with earlier generations of fascist leaders. One of the things that fascism has always been very good at is making the institutions of state and making the individuals within that state morally complicit in its crimes. And when Trump talks openly about a torture regime, he's inviting everybody into the torture chamber. And that, to me, can only be possible in an era of extraordinary fear, that in normal periods in history, the American public wouldn't want to be invited into the torture chamber with their leaders. The fact that Trump has realized that millions, maybe tens of millions of Americans, are very happy being invited down that dark pathway, that to me bespeaks to the moment of what kind of fear-based culture, what kind of fear-based politics we're now living through. Torture is what Trump says we should do to our enemies. But, of course, the big question is, who exactly are our enemies? What is Trump's well, answer? Well, the problem is, when you unleash fear as a political currency, anything and everyone becomes the enemy. So we have real enemies. There's no doubt that al-Qaeda or ISIS, for example, are bona fide, genuine enemies. On the other hand, if you then reach out and you say, the entire Muslim world... The entire Muslim religion is our enemy, as we're increasingly doing with our travel bans, our refugee bans, with the rhetoric around Islam and so on. Well, then you've moved from a specific set of enemies to this very amorphous fear. Um, if you say that all Mexicans who cross the border are our enemy, if you say that all young black men on the streets demonstrating against police violence are our enemy, well, eventually... All we're doing is flailing around at one enemy after another after another. And the thing that fascinated me as I was writing the book, this transcends politics. When you get into a moment where you assume the worst of everybody and you assume that if something bad can happen, it will happen, well, that doesn't just impact your political choices. It also impacts your parenting style, whether or not you give your kids any kind of freedom, whether you let them roam around their neighborhood with friends. Um, it impacts what kind of educational choices you make, whether or not you're happy having a school that lets kids play outside or whether you want your school to be walled off. It impacts what medical choices you make. If you believe that vaccinations are some kind of vast conspiracy by the medical pharmaceutical complex, and so you don't vaccinate your children, well, you're impacting your kids' health, but you're also impacting community health at a profound level. So I think the thing about fear is, once it becomes the canvas on which we paint all of our stories, you rapidly get to a very, very dark cultural place. In your book, Jumping at Shadows, one of the most interesting things 
you bring, <clears throat> let me start that over. One of the most fascinating and original parts of your book, Jumping at Shadows, is your discussion of what you call friction zones, spaces where you say opportunity and despair intermingle, where our dreams collide with our nightmares. Please explain these friction zones. Well, I was trying to work out, there were these places I was reporting where things were happening that wouldn't happen in normal areas. So a case in point would be in those areas just north of the U.S.-Mexican border, in the desert south of Tucson, for example. You routinely hear stories of the Border Patrol finding these oftentimes dehydrated, very, very sick refugees who are wandering lost in the desert. Or not, Sorry, not refugees, immigrants wandering lost in the desert. And you hear stories of some of the violence that's inflicted on these immigrants once they're caught. And one of the stories you hear repeatedly is that the Border Patrol will catch immigrants and frequently push them face down into cactus spikes, which is deeply, deeply painful. If you've ever pricked your hand on a cactus spike, you know how much it hurts. Well, imagine your face being pushed down into that. There's no reason to do that other than to inflict fear, to basically sort of impose a system of dominance. We're the boss here. We can do what we like. Now, if you had police going into a suburban area or an affluent gated community and inflicting that kind of torment on people, you'd have an outrage. You'd have people up in arms saying this is just un-American, it's unacceptable, you'd have congressional hearings, etc. But if it happens in what I call these friction zones, these areas that divide affluence from poverty or that we see as being vital to our security in some other way, in those zones, we give law enforcement and we give other agents of authority, a lot more power. So you see this on the border. You see it in poor, primarily black and brown neighborhoods where policing strategies are routinely more violent than they are in other parts of the country. You see it in airports where we have given away a tremendous amount of civil liberties to uniformed officers in the name of security. Now, you can argue whether or not that's needed, whether or not it's sensible, whether or not it's effective. But I think it's undeniable that in these friction zones, different emotions are colliding. So the airport is a case in point. It's a wonderful place in one way. It's our gateway, our portal to the world. It's the way we experience other cultures. It's the way we travel to far off places. But it's also deeply scary because we know that terrorists target airports. And it's that juxtaposition of optimism and pessimism, of hope and fear, of good dreams, bad dreams, that I think creates particularly weird dynamics. And they play out, as I said, in all kinds of areas. And they have consequences, not just abstract consequences, but consequences for us, for how we live our lives, consequences for how we relate to the government, consequences for how we relate to each other as individuals. Of course, there are two bigger global fears, literally global fears, that uh, that we face. Uh, nuclear war and Uh, climate change, global warming, how do those fit into your analysis? Well, I think one of the things that really interests me is how we calculate or miscalculate risk. And so when you ask Americans what they're most scared of, very few Americans say climate change. And actually, climate change is something very worthy of being fearful of, because if we don't get a handle on it soon, it's going to have just huge implications for how we live our lives all over the world. And we've started seeing these with these more and more powerful hurricanes. We're seeing it with droughts that are breaking harvests in many countries and so on. So 
in a, ra- in a rational world, we'd be much more scared of climate change than we actually are. And we channel energies towards dealing with it. Same thing with nuclear weapons. We are now in a more dangerous era in terms of nuclear weapons, their proliferation, their possible use than we've been in decades. And yet, until recently, until North Korea and the America-North Korea tensions grabbed the headlines, we really weren't thinking about it. It was a back burner issue. And so one of the fascinating bits of data I found when I was researching the book was when Americans prioritize fears, turns out that more Americans are scared of spiders and scared of gun control, not just guns, but gun control, than are scared of nuclear war. That doesn't make any sense. But it does speak to the fact that oftentimes how we prioritize risk and threat bears only the slimmest resemblance to what's genuinely risky, genuinely threatening. And then you see the consequences of that. Last week at the United Nations, Donald Trump gets up and in front of the world brazenly talks about the fact that if attacked by North Korea, America will, quote-unquote, totally destroy North Korea. Well, when you're using language like that, and you're the leader of the most powerful country on earth, it's absolutely clear that what he was saying was, if you push us, if you provoke us, we will drop nuclear bombs all over your country. He wasn't saying we will take out the leadership. He wasn't saying we will bring about regime change. He was saying we will totally destroy a nation of 25 million people. Now, that should put the hair up on everybody's back, because if that becomes the new norm, then we've entered an age of essentially American-led nuclear terrorism or nuclear blackmail. We've entered a sort of imperial age where America says, our way or the highway, and if you don't like it, we reserve the right to use the worst weapons on Earth. And that is an absolutely Mad Max vision of international diplomacy or international relations. There's a lot of very grim and horrifying stuff in your book, Jumping at Shadows, but there's also some fascinating antidotes to the toxic messages of the fear mongers and the demagogues. I was especially interested in a group you profiled called the, in Tucson, Arizona, the Tucson Samaritans. Who are the Tucson, Tucson Emeritans and what, what, did, what do they do? Well, coming back to what I was saying a minute ago about these immigrants who are brought over by coyotes into this incredibly inhospitable landscape. And this is an area where it can get up to 115, 120 degrees day on end in the summer. And there's very little water and the mountains are extremely difficult to cross. And people routinely die out there. And you find bodies out there, you find the remains of bodies. It's a very, very dangerous environment. And so these groups, the Tucson Samaritans and some other groups, have essentially realized, look, these immigrants are coming over. And they're going to keep coming over because there are a lot of desperate people looking for economic opportunity or safety north of the border. And government policy at the moment serves mainly to push them further and further into the desert. So what the Samaritans and others do, they're not allowed to help the immigrants. They're not allowed to find them and help them track their way to safety in the north. That's a felony offense. But what some of them do do is they go out into the remote pathways in the desert and they leave water so that at the very least, these immigrants, if they find the water, can drink something and maybe avoid a slow, painful death by dehydration. Um, And I think, you know, what fascinated me about the Samaritans was that they had worked out a way to think 
of the individuals they were dealing with, these migrants coming north, as real human beings with real human stories. And they were sort of transcending the politics. So the politics dehumanizes. The politics says, well, these guys are coming over illegally. They're bad people. They're trying to invade our country, etc., etc. The Tucson Samaritans say, look, they may or may not be coming illegally. We may or may not need to fix our immigration system, our border security, and so on. But do we really want individual human beings dying of dehydration in the desert in our own backyard? And they concluded that we didn't, that we're morally better if we try and work out a way to save these lives. And you can see these stories all over the country. It's not just people going off into the desert. You can see it in how local neighborhoods are trying to reimagine community. You can see it in how some crime victims, people I wrote about in my book, have managed somehow, despite the violence inflicted on them, to find forgiveness for the people who hurt them. Now, those stories, to me, I talk about the roads less traveled in my book. It seems to me that those are sort of moral pathways that provide a better alternative. They provide a better model of humanity. And one of the things that I hope, you know, when people read my book, partly you're right, it is a very depressing litany about bad things that have been unleashed in our culture. But it's not just depressing, because the upside is that there are these alternatives that people are thinking about and living their lives around. And those stories to me are fascinating and they're uplifting. Sasha Abramsky, read him at thenation.com, where there's an excerpt from his new book, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Publishers Weekly, in a starred review, called it eloquent and devastating. Thank you, Sasha. You're very welcome. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.